Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Jonathan Bow loves trying crazy new grazing and farming practices and trying to push the envelope of things that can or can't be done. Jonathan enjoys seeing the intersection of grazing management and the well-being of livestock operations, logistically and economically. Developing water infrastructure and planting fence posts, both temporary posts and permanent, have made a big difference in the grazing capacity and cost of production with limited land resources on his family's farm. Electric fencing has also improved cattle handling psychology as the cattle are trained to temporary electric fence, which has a multitude of applications. Water pipeline infrastructure has enabled the flexibility to create small paddocks that result in short graze periods and long recovery times, which has improved the productivity of their pastures. The genetics of maternal Angus cattle that thrive in low-input management systems is Jonathan's passion, which is shared with his brother Stefan. Together with their families, they run Edie Creek Angus at Enola, Manitoba, with their parents Herman and Marilyn, and they have recently acquired the Howery Angus herd, which stay in North Dakota under the care of the Rath Family Ranch in Sterling, North Dakota. They're excited about the first Grazer's Edge bull sale, which will be held online and ending November 16th of 2023. Jonathan and his wife Eileen have four wonderful kids and they enjoy being actively involved in their neighborhood and church communities. Stefan was raised on a feedlot operation in the small town of Enola, just east of Winnipeg, Manitoba. He has always had a passion for the cattle industry, and his parents taught him the value of combining a thirst for knowledge with hard work and passion. Stefan received a diploma in agriculture from the University of Manitoba, while also playing volleyball for the University of Manitoba team. During that time, he also married his wife, Kendra, and they have since been blessed with their four children, Jackson, Michaela, Alexa, and Micah. 20 years ago, the family farm shifted operations with the start of a purebred Angus herd, which became Edie Creek Angus. Alongside his dad and brother, the third-generation farm now has an annual bull sale where they sell two-year-old bulls and bred heifers. Their breeding program centers around maternal traits, with fertility and longevity in a low-input forage-based system being focal points. Stefan continues to be an active participant in opportunities that expand his knowledge of the industry, Having taken the holistic management and ranching for profit courses, he uses its principles to ensure that business decisions benefit his family, the community, biodiversity, and profitability.
Today on the show, I have the opportunity to talk to Jonathan and Stefan Bow of Edie Creek Angus. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Before, Michelle. Can you tell me a little bit about your history and background in agriculture? Originally, my grandma and grandpa came over from Holland in 1957, and my dad was four years old at the time, and they bought their first farm in 1961 after working for farmers for a bit. So they had hogs, eggs, and shipping cream as their enterprises. And eventually in the 70s, they uh, started a feedlot here. My grandfather was a cattle drover from Holland. And so he had a good eye for cattle and made quite a lot of money, adding value to undervalued classes of livestock. Yeah, my dad quit his job with the federal government in 1988. And in 1998, my mom and dad bought the farm from my grandma and grandpa. And eventually it was actually incorporated in 2008 with my brother and myself. And shortly after that, we started having some cow-calf pairs. But at the time when we bought it, it was still just a feedlot when dad bought it. So some cow-calf pairs started showing up around 2000. And we had a, a small cow-calf herd around 2003 when BSE hit. And that was kind of when we decided to shift away from feedlotting our land isn't all that suitable for feedlot here and the commodity nature of the commodity cycle made it pretty tough to make enough money to support everybody around here by then i was starting to attend some of the grazing schools and holistic type conferences and we came across some cow calf dispersals from purebred angus breeders in manitoba and started to put together a little purebred herd without really knowing what our objectives were what our market would be uh, but we found out that some of the really fat high input kind of cattle didn't work in a ranch environment without lots of grain supplementation and so we we had a kind of a skinny cow problem i would call it and so i did some research and did a, a tour a road trip back in 02 or so and checked out some operations in the states including oldie cattle company pharaoh cattle company diamond d angus and then i went to Crowfoot cattle in Alberta, where they were using some OCC bloodlines, Oldie Cattle Company bloodlines, and also in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, there's a couple of breeders that were using the Oldie bloodlines as well. And so we sort of started to hone in on on bloodlines that would work in a grassland environment without lots of supplementation. That was kind of when we started to get a focus for our breeding program and by 2008, then we held our first bull sale up in Asheron. That was 16 bull sales ago, I guess, and that's where we are today. Awesome. And can you tell us where you're located and what your operation looks like now? Sure, yeah. We have uh, about 1,200 acres that we own here around Enola, Manitoba, which is half an hour east of Winnipeg, just on the edge of bush and swampland. And so basically all around us and all the way to the west between us and Winnipeg is grain farming land. There's the odd hobby farm of 20 or 30 cows, but we're the only operation that really, well, there's, I guess my brother's father-in-law has a cow-calf operation about 12, 15 miles away. There aren't too many cattle on, on this heavy clay land. Uh, it's pretty flat. We don't have any hills. We have hill envy more so. Yeah, that's kind of 
we're, we're running cows in grain land, so we've got to be pretty uh, shrewd in our, our management so that we can get enough productivity out of the grass and forages so that we can hold our own and not get swallowed up by the grain farmers around us because land is getting pretty expensive around us here too. Yeah, I bet. We also have hill envy here. We can see the Brandon Hills, but we're pretty Oh, flat. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we won't argue about who's got worse topography because every, every place has its challenges. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. More specific to your cattle herd, how many animals are you running and when do you calve? And I guess, how do you manage your herd? Yeah, so we calve in May. We actually have two herds. We uh, last year bought a cow herd in North Dakota from a mentor of ours named Monty Howery. So that's the Howry Angus herd. They also down there at Sterling, North Dakota, just east of Bismarck. And they also calve May 5th, I think is the start date for both our herds. So there's about 140 cows down there calving. And we've got a little over 200 here in Manitoba, the Edie Creek herd. Up here in Edie Creek Herd, we keep everything around. We don't sell anything off the cow. There's always six to 700 head running around here in the summers. We sell bulls and bred heifers. We used to sell grass-fed beef, but that's kind of going to go away now that we're going to focus on this Harry Angus herd that we've got in the States. So we'll sell steers to anybody that wants to, and even open heifers to folks that want to market them as grass-fed beef. Yeah, that's sort of the general numbers behind the herds here. Perfect. And do you want to do a shameless plug of when your bull sale usually occurs? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> so we're having our first ever Howard Angus sale in North Dakota coming up here in November 16th. It's an online-only sale, 18-month-old bulls, forage developed, no grain or nothing. They're just really coming off grass. There's 40 bulls in that sale, so you can check out our new Harry Angus website, which is harryangus.com. And then our Edie Creek herd, we're having, what was it, 17th sale coming up next year. That's always the second Saturday in March. So those are coming two-year-old bulls, and uh, you can bid online, but also in person, and that's those two sales. We do sell some bred heifers usually in our Edie Creek sale, so you could look for those. We do sell some females privately. What is your future plans for your North Dakota herd? The future plan is to leave them there. They are on a ranch with Kip Rath and his family. That's where they were for, I want to say, five to seven years before we took over ownership of the herd. So they're nicely settled in there, and the Raths are really excellent and awesome people to work with. So we're really happy to have them there. So the future plan is to continue having two separate sales, one out of North Dakota, the U.S. market, and then keeping the Edie Creek herd here, keeping that the same. So no plans of bringing those cows up to Canada. That's super interesting to me. And I have so many more questions that I could ask you just about that, but I will stay on topic maybe for the rest of it. <laughs> Looking through your website, you offer some great information about your farm philosophy and how you breed and raise your animals. Can you share some of this with our listeners? Sure, yeah. One of the quotes I'll start off with is from a guy named Logan Pribino on Twitter. It says, uh, if grazing isn't the answer, you're asking the wrong questions. 
So extended grazing techniques and keeping the cattle out on the land in ways where the cattle work for you is really the focus of our breeding program and the focus of our operation. We have a low input operation that we, we try to do year-round grazing as much as possible. We've gone from bale grazing through winters to kind of a bit of corn grazing in the last couple of years, and we intend to do more bale grazing this year. Our philosophy is to try and work with nature and raise animals that are hardy and durable, functional, fertile animals that live a long time and highly maternal so that they don't need a lot of intervention at calving time. We've had some of our bull customers who would have started off buying red Angus bulls to to just calve out their heifers. They tried a black bull and then the daughters of those black bulls turned out to be pretty good looking cows. So they kept them as cows and uh, they've shifted their whole herd from a Cherelay high input type of cow to a black Angus lower input type of cow. And it's their age and stage of life because the cows uh, need less intervention. Uh, they can calve them on pasture because they're savvy at fending off predators, but not too aggressive to, to hurt people. And so, yeah, our, our goal is really to help beef producers be more profitable by having cattle that work with less labor. One of the things we're conscientious of is that in North America, we have some of the highest input costs in the whole world in terms of producing beef. And beef is a global commodity. So if it costs $7 a pound to buy bulk ground beef from Canada and they can get it from $3 landed in the port from Argentina or Brazil, they're going to buy it from Argentina and and truck it from the coast in and still save lots of money, right? It's a a commodity that is a global commodity and, and lots of places in the world have a lower cost of living. So we're really trying to find ways to drive down the cost of production for guys by being able to run more cows with less full-time equivalent labor. And so some of those things have to do with grazing year-round instead of using them for longer. And yeah, that's kind of our overlying principle, I think. I often am in conversations with producers who they're talking about why they want to have lower input cattle, but I've never heard that reasoning before, which makes so much sense of it being a global commodity and you can buy it so much cheaper from another country because they can produce it so much cheaper. So that's an interesting way to think about it. I will make sure that your website link for both of your websites are included into our show notes for today for any listeners who are interested. You mentioned your paradigm shift on the website. Can you tell me what your operation looked like prior to this and how it's changed since you had that paradigm shift? We're kind of fans of the term lifelong learning. And so it's still an ongoing process, but we originally were a feedlot that, you know, bought feeder cattle and fed them and sold them, tried to make turn of dollars on that animal and uh, we kind of got tired of that, like I explained at the beginning of the podcast, and we moved to cow-calf production. And when we started into cow-calf production, we had really taller-framed, heavier-milking cows that really needed grain or a higher-energy supplement somewhere in their ration. They just weren't able to rebreed on grass alone, it felt like, in the summer. And so we started looking for animals that worked in the environment that they and the environment that we had here and part of our the genetics was 
first part of that shift, but we were still calving in January, February, and a bit of March. So one of the other paradigm shifts was sort of born finally out of taking the holistic management course, which helped us evaluate our quality of life and some of our other goals. And at the time we took the course, we, we both had young kids. Stefan's kids were five, three, and one, and I had a two-year-old and another one on the way. And so we were up in the middle of the night with our kids, helping support our wives, take care of them, and up in the middle of the night with our cows, helping our dad take care of the cows. And I don't know about you, you're in the middle of that, so you know how hard it can be to get three hours of sleep instead of six or seven hours of sleep if you have a bad night with kids being sick or whatever. And yeah, uh, so we we saw the the shift to May calving as a, a big jump in the quality of life, and we actually had some bull customers really challenge us on that because we were having cattle that worked in the environment that we have without supplementation, but we were still calving in January and February. And back then our rationale was to make sure we had time and energy to spend on our cropping enterprise. We did have an organic cropping enterprise at the time, which we, back in 2015, we phased out in favor of making feed for the cows. I'd say one other paradigm there that we were stuck on was that we couldn't calve cows away from the yard. Right. So these, and, and around the yard, we were way too flat and at risk of flooding kind of not, you know, real flooding, but just not a place to calve cows. So then after taking the course, it was, no, we can calve cows two miles away on the one quarter section we have that has some slope to it and you can give cows good spots to calve. So that was another big one that we had to change that they cow, you know, now we walk the cows down the road in this poly wire box that we walk down the road and uh, they kindly carry the calves down to pasture for us because they're still inside. And uh, then, then we could spring calve is what I'm trying to get to. So we could move to spring calving on a quarter that wasn't right by the yard or by a barn. And it, it, we had to use portable panels to make a pen for anybody that we thought would need some needed some help calving. So it's really, really 90, whatever, 8%. I don't know exactly the number, 99% unassisted calving. So it's really, when you're not there, it's amazing how well cows can calve without you. Mm -hmm. um, that was something we got to learn pretty well back then, but uh, yeah, sorry to jump in on Jonathan there, but let him take over again. That's right. Basically we're able to trust the cows to calve. And, and one of the troubles with winter calving is that, with all the supervision that you're giving them, you tend to jump in in the middle of the night because you want to get back to bed. And so you put them in the barn so you can watch them calve, or if they're already in the barn, you put them in the chute because they aren't calving fast enough and all that interference. It works against their natural processes of being able to have that calf on their own and exercise the muscles that they need to to help their bodies clean out the fluids after calving. And all those things are natural things that cows are designed to do and so when we finally changed to spring calving and not checking at nighttime we actually lost less calves when we our first year of calving in in april and may than we did when we would calve in february march and, and january i guess too but uh yeah so it's good to know that cows can do their job <laughs> When I was young, my parents had a purebred Charlie operation and calved in the wintertime. And I remember my dad, some of those mornings when I would get up to school and he was finally going to bed at night 
during calving season. And like you said, with our young kids, I couldn't imagine trying to calve our cows right now in the wintertime as well. When you're calving on pasture, what does that typically look like for you guys? And what are your daily labor requirements? Yeah. So like I said, we have that one quarter section that here in Manitoba, we're calving our cows at for the E Creek herd. And so we don't have quite enough stockpiled grass to be able to graze them the whole time they're calving here. So we do give them some pasture, but we also let them bale graze at the same time to get some more feed into them. Yeah. And then our, our cow herd in North Dakota, they do have enough, they got beautiful hills and great pasture land there. Our cows run alongside another commercial cow herd and they all calve together. And it's sort of like 400 plus cows calving in a quarter section um, all together and they move them. I don't know if it's quite weekly. It's probably not quite weekly to a new to new quarter to calve, but they are grazing strictly when they are calving down there. Are you catching those calves once they're born to do like needles and tagging and that kind of thing? Or are you more hands-off until they come in from the pasture or until you're moving them around for summer grazing? Yep. So we do, the main one we want is the birth weights. So we are still grabbing the calf and getting a birth weight. Jonathan made a real nice crane off the back of our quad so that we can put a calf in a sling and hang it off the back of the quad to get a weight. That's how we do it here. So we'll tag them and we give them a selenium and vitamin E shot at the same time, but and get that birth weight. And that's what we do. It would be would be real nice to just look at them and say it's a small, medium, or large calf. That would be <laughs> nice, but we're not there yet. <laughs> what does profitable beef production mean to you? And how are you achieving this in your operation? I think for us, it started really at looking at profit per acre. Our farm was really diversified when we started out. We had commercial cows, purebred cows. We got into 300 ewes for five or six years. We had organic crops. We uh, made all our own feed and yeah, marketed grass-fed beef. So we were kind of doing everything. And it got to a point where we needed to know, you know, what enterprise was making what per acre. And if sure organic grain prices are double what conventional are back then but is it worth the time and energy when we weren't actually particularly i'd say great at growing organic crops we weren't we're not grain farmers we're more cattle cattlemen so yes made a great long spreadsheet of every enterprise and what they were doing per acre and focusing in on where we were the most profitable and and it takes time, especially like a purebred herd. You're not going to say, well, the bulls are most profitable. So tomorrow I'm going to sell a hundred. That's not the way it works, but it still is really useful for us to look at those numbers to make decisions. Cause otherwise you're really blind and you're going out and not being as effective as you can be. And just cause something's really shiny and exciting, it doesn't mean it's the right thing to be doing. Just for perspective. What would the land price, say, per acre be in your area generally? It's kind of hard to say. It's, you know, not that long ago, it was around three. And by now, it might be up to five. Some has sold for 6000 closer to Winnipeg, but we're not there. We are really, we live on Stone Ridge Road. <laughs> and so we've got the stones and like the 
east side of our road it's bush and swamp going east we're not we're not in the heart of of that six thousand dollar land that's for sure but it would definitely still be important to know kind of what your value per acre is in those enterprises yeah. so Tell me about your grazing strategy and what you hope to achieve for the cattle and the landscape. Yeah, the grazing strategy, we, we've never done any continuous grazing. We've always done rotational grazing. We started out probably with 30-day rotation on alfalfa grass pastures. I want to say 20 years ago, it might be around that. And now... You know, the, there was we went through five years of drought that ended for us in 2021, and that really kicked our butt in terms of getting to know what we're really doing. And that forced us to go all the way to about a 90 day rotation because if you got over stuff in 30 days and you got back to the beginning, there was nothing left to to graze those cows on. So we're we're kind of doing we're doing that. We're doing about 90 day rotation and about two to three days per move maybe even three to four days per move. So everything's kind of getting one and a half times grazed, if that makes sense. So some of the land's getting grazed twice, some of the land's only getting grazed once. Oh, and the other one I wanted to talk about there was our winter grazing a little bit. We used to only bale graze prior to the drought. So like over a decade, our cows bale grazed and we never gave them any grain pellets or DDGs or anything. And that was super simple, and we really loved the results we saw from that. But the drought told us we cannot continue that. And at the time, everything for us was in perennial land, and we had to start growing some annuals. So that got us into corn grazing. Uh, last year, we kept the calves on the cows. Steers and heifers stayed on until the first week of March before we weaned them, and they were corn grazing their dams. Both calves were weaned in January, but... The goal now is to just build a, a winter grazing system where we're not reliant on equipment because I don't really want to ever replace the tractor that we bought a couple years ago. <laughs> That's sort of my goal right now is trying to make, you know, and bale grazing does that totally fine. It's just bales got real expensive for us. And there's definitely more, more input if you're paying for a baler and you're cutting your hay and you're driving your tractor and. Yeah, for sure. Can you share a little bit about your experience with holistic management and with ranching for profit and how these programs influenced your approach to farming? Sure, yeah. Definitely recommend anybody who hasn't uh, thought about it to think about it and anybody who's thinking about it to try and make time in your year to, to take one of those courses. Holistic management was what we took in 2014 and just a really good time to sit around and learn together and talk about our goals as a family. It was really great to, to hear it spoken that feelings are important to talk about and to those things are the fabric that help farms succeed is, is having good relationships with each other and those things are validated when we but obviously that's not the only aspect of successful farming the land and the finances are also extremely important. So there's really good instruction about grazing management and bale grazing was one of the things that was taught kind of thing in there but the financial component was really helpful for me uh, I'm not really much of a planner I'm thankfully Stefan is a, a good planner and 
has a good global mindset of priority of things that need to happen, but uh, it helps validate the importance of budgeting and planning financially and in terms of our grazing rotation and you know a lot in 2021 in the year 2021 when we had that drought we knew in july that we were in trouble so we started planning for uh, a totally different feeding regime than what we had been used to so we like we mentioned live in grain farm country so we were able to pivot away from a forage only ration that year we bailed a bunch of straw and bought some grain and fed the cows grain and we had a little bit of corn silage to mix it in so it wasn't so dry but yeah the ability to plan ahead to know when our grazing is going to be done we we've got another month of cover crop grazing around here now and then we know we'll have to start grazing on a silage pile or standing corn but yeah and the other important thing that those courses taught us was to focus on marketing things well and you know, be aware of the distinction between $20 an hour jobs and $100 an hour jobs. Some of the planning and marketing jobs that we do, they're, they're often the hardest to get to because you got to sit inside and focus on, you know, your marketing efforts, where you're going to sell your calves or sell your grain if you're a grain farmer. But, but those jobs, dedicated time to, to do those jobs is worth so much because those decisions can be so helpful in the profitability of farming, you know, just to be able to say, you know, the cow run goes every year, the prices drop. So why don't we try selling the calves a little bit sooner, even if it means we got to not do the things we usually do in August, we've got to round up the cattle, but just trying to have time to make decisions well, because the implications on a big size farm are pretty big of every decision that you make. So yeah, those are some of the things that we learned through holistic management and ranching for profit. We took the ranching for profit course just in uh, January of 2023. So that was just a little while ago and really enjoyed having our paradigms challenged and we were able to run through some of the profitability of our various enterprises. Now we spent time every evening going through our numbers and making sure that we were able to apply the things we learned in the day. But yeah, being able to know your numbers and be able to make good decisions are some of the things that we learned through those courses. I haven't taken the holistic management course, but definitely our experience in ranching for profit is that it's not just about production or management, right? It's also talking about the finances and what are the goals of your business? And like you talked about those feelings of what are the other people on your team thinking and what's important to them and getting everybody on the same page, which is really important in the success of your business. Mm-hmm. Keeping people on the same page helps them be motivated and feel respected and appreciated. and. As much as those are kind of maybe not talked about by men in particular, they are still felt by men and and acknowledging those things is important just so we can enjoy working with each other. Yeah, for sure. And in your family, on your farm, how many of you are there that are working together? My dad and my mom are still involved in the farm. Mom does bookkeeping and parts runs and all sorts of odd things, including keeping the, the farmhouse running so that we can have a nutritional supplementation some parts of the day and dad does a lot of the, the chores for us in the winter and routine stuff he loves doing the hands-on stuff so he he gets stuff done and we do the marketing and planning in the office when that stuff is needed like in the last couple of weeks when we've been working on our full sale catalog and our website for the Howie Angus project there he's been Mr. Steady outside and moving the groups of cattle and 
keeping on top of all the things that need to be done. So it's it's neat to see how we've been able to work to the different strengths that we have and work within our own gifts. And Stefan is just a machine working on the registration stuff and the planning stuff and that kind of stuff I would get bogged down in and distracted in. And uh, I do some of the customer service stuff and some of the other marketing pieces, but it's good to have a big team and to be able to appreciate and recognize each person is different and gifted differently and uh, that different isn't bad. (laughs) No, that's really important to remember and really good advice for people who are, I think, working in, like you said, in larger teams, but also even in smaller teams to really think about what what you're good at and what your strengths you bring to the team or what you're interested in and then trying to take on those pieces a little bit more. Yeah. Annually, you host a fall grazing and genetics tour at your farm. What do you show visitors during this tour and what do you hope they'll take away from seeing your management approach? We do something crazy here every year, it seems like, in terms of experimenting with cover crops or how we graze them or Last year, we did a sorghum field that we did standing graze after the frost. It worked good at first, but having the snow come down, the, the sorghum was a brown midrib variety, so it fell down when the winds came and then the snow piled down onto it. So it seemed like a really good idea at the first part of the winter, but then the cows were having a hard time digging through the snow and um, they were only getting like 40% utilization, I think, towards the end. So then that ended up being quite a challenge in the spring to work through all that residue. But grazing methods and watering methods, different things that we've tried. The use of lifters to get cattle into different paddocks instead of having gates at different junctions in the pasture. And yeah, corn grazing, we'll talk about that at this year's tour, December 1st. We're having our grazing tour Friday, December 1st from 1.30 till 4.30 p.m. Um, and we're all welcome to that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good time to get together and be able to learn from each other too. That's one of my favorite things is having others come. They ask you questions or they see things that you didn't see or they're doing something similar. Like if we're like 90% there and we just needed that one little tip to bring us to the 100% effectiveness of this grazing method, then somebody in the crowd brings that forward and everybody in the whole crowd wins. So we show them that, we show them our genetics in terms of, you know, the the bulls that are developing for the next year's sale and also what cows look like behind the bulls. Um, Our cows are a little more moderate frame than some, so they're shaped a little differently. They're typically shorter legged with longer spines and a little bit heavier muscle than some of the bigger cows. But yeah, we just talk about grass and genetics and I've always enjoyed tours and conferences and and hands-on learning so we try and keep it hands-on and Stefan last year did a really good job of analyzing some of our costs per acre of of what it took to grow the corn grazing crop and the corn silage crop and the, we made some sorghum into silage bales some into a chopped silage and some we grazed so we did all the analysis of of those things to help people think about just different options of how you can harvest different things and I guess like sorghum is kind of a novel crop to our area too. We there aren't too many people that have grown it, but last year we grew probably seven tons an acre. Or, um, yeah, just different crops and grazing strategies. And that rolls really well into my next question. But first, I'm just going to ask you a quick question about the tour itself. 
if listeners are interested in coming to the tour, do they need to call ahead or register in advance or anything like that, or they can just show up? Yeah, you can pretty much just show up. We're just having some snacks served in the afternoon, so we probably won't run out of snacks at 1.30 to 4.30. So come on down to an old Manitoba, just a half an hour east of Winnipeg. So if that gives you an idea of how far Winnipeg is from your place, that gives you an idea. From the west perimeter, it's almost an hour. And you talked about this a little bit already, but how do you use record keeping to support your management decisions? And what data do you prepare ahead of time to share with tour participants? Yeah, so for the record keeping, the for these drought years especially, what's been most helpful is making sure once we get through the year, like Jonathan said, the other year in July, we could tell that we didn't, we really didn't have any feed put up by July and all we had in front of us was the option to bale some straw, which we were very, very thankful for. So there is certainly planning that needs to happen during the growing season and that does happen, but a pretty helpful one is when we get after we get through it and you know you're sitting in the desk in December writing down what happened you know when cattle were moved from one quarter to another or when did everybody come together as one herd for fall grazing and then writing down you know how many weeks did they last on that cover crop or the same for the corn grazing and breaking out what the costs were in the end for grazing pairs together until March so for the, the grazing tour, I just had a handout that when it went to different fields and it gave the history of the field, what was it, you know, the year before, what was it growing? And it was had been a hay field before that for or pasture. A couple of them were that way for about a decade before that. It would have said that. And then the neighbor custom seeded it for X amount per acre cost. And there's what our seed costs were. And if we put fertilizer, the fertilizer cost. So just the rundown of our inputs and then the ones we hadn't harvested anyways we just gave estimates of what we thought that standing sorghum grazing was going to do for us having it written down and then you know when we go into next spring and we think about should we grow more green feed well every silage bale costs you somewhere in the 25 to 30 something dollars per bale just to make it so when you look at your numbers and you bailed one field and you graze the other you can you can lose some feed, leave it behind on the ground if you're just grazing it because you're saving, say, $30 a bale from not having baled it. So those are the sorts of decisions you get to when you compare different things that you've done. And, and we can try to share some of that. Good for you guys for taking the time not only to gather all of that information, but also to have it available to people that are, that are coming to tour the farm. What would you say your opinion is on the value participants gain from peer-to-peer learning at field days, tours, et cetera? I'm really big on it. I did okay in school, but I never got as much joy out of learning as I did when I started taking farm tours and grazing schools and conferences on agriculture. It helps, you know, that's kind of my passion and that's where I really found interest more so than English or math or history. But learning from people who have a stake in it and people who are also excited about it and seeing it and being able to put your hands on it and see how these decisions have impacted people's bottom lines. Just, it's so compelling to be able to see successes and failures and to be able to learn from it and need to see, yeah, the genuineness and 
the sharing of, of things that have worked well and, and not worked well. And, and that kind of sharing is very valuable in an industry where we don't have very high margins and every bit of money saved is, is a, you know, a dollar towards a profit. And uh, so it's, it's important and it's exciting. So uh, I, yeah, we just love it. And that's what, one of the reasons why we host a, a tour in the fall, because we just want to be able to facilitate opportunities for people to learn from our mistakes because <laughs> yeah one of our beliefs is that if you're not failing at something you're not pushing the line far enough towards learning if you're just comfortable in in what you've always done you're probably missing out on something and so we try and try something crazy every year and try and learn from that leading edge bleeding edge type of thing and do you have any good trial and error or big learning curve stories that you like to share or that you'd like to share today? Yeah, sure. Probably early on for us, when we started out cow-calf and buying purebred cows 20 years ago, it was just taking conventional cows and kicking them out to pasture and saying, come home bred. That was a huge learning curve for us that not all genetic have been required to do that or have been asked to do that or anything so we had some really big learning curves a long time ago there the genetic side of it in terms of getting a cow to do you know use her four stomachs and bring home a respectable good calf in the fall and breed back um, because that's a huge cost that was come up open (laughs) so that was a big one early on for us i'd say and then for this drought that we went through and ended in 21 was that we had everything in perennials and it took us probably two years too long to figure out that we got to get some annuals going because our hay land and pastures were just ridiculously underproducing and the grain farmers around us were still doing half decent crops on those annuals and they use something like four times less water than a perennial plant. So getting into some annuals was a big, was a big deal. And then even just feeding grain to our cows it was a paradigm sort of shifting change for us after being over a decade of not, and it was a good tool for us, not feeding grain to the cows. It was a good tool for us to genetically select cow families that can produce forest on forages only. So now we've got those cow families. And, and now that we're grazing some grain with corn, it, we, you know, we're still trying to push them by leaving the calves on. So it's not like we're automatically trying to give them an easy life by doing it kind of thing. And one other thing in terms of trial and error things is is to try something on the smaller scale the first time. Don't do your whole farm one way like you've never done it before. Don't do the whole farm. We're going to try a funny grazing idea this winter. We're going to try to chop corn on 20 to 30 acres if we can find somebody to come back in November to chop a bit of corn once it's totally dead and dry. And then we're going to drop little piles of chopped corn right on that field that are you know, a half a tandem load of piles and graze those piles instead of grazing standing corn because I don't love the variety or the curve change in diet when we're grazing corn that when the cows, you know, when we put them into corn, we put them in full so they're not that first day filling up on grain or anything like that, but it's certainly they go in full the way we do it with silage bales or something else and then they get into that piece of corn and they've got grain for the first little while and then they go to leaves and stalks and we feed them straw bales to clean up 
just trying to get away from some of that variety by chopping it and leaving little piles once the world's frozen over and that pile is not going to ensile it's going to sit there and be just dry chopped corn one of the challenges we had with grazing corn was that the calves would break into the next section of corn that they weren't supposed to and sometimes even the cows would get in there and then they would overeat and we didn't like the effect of that overeating on corn on some of the cows so this way if they break into the next pile it's totally chopped and amalgamated into a homogeneous mixture so they have to eat the stalks and the leaves and the grain kernels and the cobs all at once in these little piles so see how it works and hope that corn silage doesn't spoil too much but we're going to chop it after it's totally frozen and dry hope that the corn doesn't get heated up by the ground under the snow and and spoil a little bit but we're going to graze through it and and hope to learn a few things (laughs) i'll be interested to hear what you find out about that because we also do lots of grazing corn and that's a really interesting idea yeah it might be a totally bomb of an idea but (laughs) At least we're not trying it out on 100 acres. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who have been some of your biggest influences or mentors in why you farm the way you do? I guess the first, the, the seeds of some of my wanting to learn things came from some of those early grazing school conferences that the provincial government put on. There's some really excellent people in extension, and there still are now, a few fewer and far between in the provincial government, but uh, those grazing school conferences really put us in touch with outside-the-box thinking and regenerative ag and got the idea in my head that there are genetics that can work in a ranch scenario. And so I did a bunch of touring when I was younger and uh, saw breeders like John Setrakov of Hillfire Angus in Middle Lake, Saskatchewan, and Tim Oldie down in Palmer, Kansas from Oldie Cattle Company. And Lately, Monty Howery has been a really great mentor for us as we've tried to refine our, our breeding program and find animals that are balanced and feminine and fertile and, and work in a low input system. And then we've learned a lot from Manitoba Peers with regenerative agriculture concepts. Michael Teeley and Blaine Jurdis are some of the guys that have really stepped forward in, in those areas and led the charge on polycropping and zero tilling and uh, so we try and adopt as much of those things as we can. And Ryan Boyd's been a real leader as he tries different things in his herd and his farming practices too. Yeah, those are some of the, the folks that have influenced us. And then, of course, the instructors in holistic management, like Don Campbell, is a real mentor to us. And we sure appreciate all that he wrote in Cattlemen's Magazine articles that he was contributing for a long time there. And Burke Teichert, we've read a lot of Burke Teichert his articles in the American Beef Magazine. And I guess another important influence has been social media networks of learning from people on Twitter, seeing pictures of what people have done, Facebook, the discussions that happen there on different practices in terms of genetics and in terms of grazing management and cropping. There's, It's really great to live in the age that we do where information is as freely available as it is and people are in a willingness to share that's the real benefit too i mean we're kind of all competitors in the industry but i think we can all do better by challenging each other and sharing our mistakes and uh, that's one of the reasons why we have a tour so people can learn from our mistakes
And what would your advice be to a fellow producer who is considering making a paradigm shift of their own? Yeah, Jonathan mentioned Don Campbell, our housing management instructor, and a quote that he has is, if you want to make small changes, change how you do things. If you want to make big changes, change how you see things. So that's sort of a, you know, back to our, we couldn't calve cows in the spring because you couldn't calve away from the yard. So, you know, we were never going to make a big change with that sort of mindset. So it's more of the, the asking more why not. And if it's, and if it's just because you, you know, you're <laughs> worried about it, you got to try it on the small scale or you got to see it at somebody's place who's already done it and they've learned from it. That's the way that we've really made our changes here was seeing it somewhere else first and then applying it here. And in terms of genetics, you know, seeing it working in all across states and then even in Canada. And then and same with now how we're trying to grow the feed or graze cows in the winter. Generally, we've seen somebody else do it and we've learned from them. So if you've got a paradigm you're stuck on, try to find somebody that's on the other side of it and ask them how it's working or why they're going to change, if they're going to continue it. Because just because somebody did it once doesn't mean they're going to continue that. But yeah, go in and learn about it some way. <laughs> there's, there's definitely lots of stuff to read, but definitely super important to go and see it. I'd say. That's a pretty powerful quote. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners today about your operation or about, I guess, like the professional development side of it? Anything like that? Professional development wise, it's always worth investing in your people. Take the time, find a neighbor that's willing to do chores for you and go out and take a seminar or a course that's maybe outside your comfort zone, but know that you probably would benefit from taking it. Like, for instance, there's a ranching for profit seminar happening in Russell on December 14th and 15th. That's a really good opportunity to get a really small taste of it. It's subsidized. Dave Pratt, former CEO of Ranching for Profit, is going to be doing the instructing. So he's just a pile of wisdom all in one one place. And so to be able to take that seminar for $100 if you're not a member of the watershed district there is an extremely good deal. Take in some of the other conferences like MFGA's conference we're not going to be able to attend that one this year because it's right around when our Ari Angus bull sale is going to be, but we've gained a lot from those conferences as well. There's the Ranching for Profit School in Saskatchewan. I don't know if it's full yet. I know the one in Alberta is, but there's one coming up this winter that you could maybe get to register for too. You know, traveling into the States is worthwhile too, but yeah, just getting out of your getting out of your bubble and finding people who, who have overcome the, the stigma of you can't do that here. There's and challenge the way things have always been done and, and see if there's things you can learn and see if there are people. People are always willing to share what they've experienced, especially if it's been helpful and transformative and they know that it'll help you. So don't be afraid to reach out and ask somebody how something happens and ask them your hardest questions. Give them all your reasons why you don't think it'll work, but let them think through those things with you and be open to new ideas. And if listeners have questions about your operation, after the episode today, or they want to get in touch with you, how can they get a hold of you? We have now two websites that get us to poweryangus.com is our new website. tells the story of how we ended up partnering with Monty and then buying his herd. And then the edcreekangus.com website is where you find the story and the genetics that we 
have been working with for the last 20 years. We're also on Twitter at edcreek underscore Howery or on Facebook at edcreek.howeryangus. And uh, be glad to answer questions and go through things with people there. That's one of the best things about those platforms is sharing pictures of this thing that didn't work or this thing that's amazing and, and just learning from each other. We have telephones too. <laughs> uh, my cell phone is 204-471-4696 and Stephen's is 204-232-1620. Perfect. And I will add all of those into the show notes as well for listeners who are looking for them. I think that wraps up our episode for today, but I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for being able to make this work. I know it's a busy time of the year for everybody and just being so willing to share information about your operation and some of the things that you're trying and doing. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for asking us to be on the podcast and we appreciate uh, your work in coordinating the sharing of information. Podcast is another uh, resource that we uh, don't get enough of in our own lives, but they're so valuable and ability to learn things while you're on a tractor bailing hay or whatever. It's quite a privilege and we appreciate your work in coordinating the transfer of information, Chantel. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada.